Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. The premiere installment of episode 59 is chock full of surprises. For one thing, at almost an hour long, the first 15 minutes are spent discussing Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, New Kids on the Block, in what you might call a lost adventure from Jeff Lister's past. Then, Graham McMillan goes on to review Frank Miller's Holy Terror, and we both look back at Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. I feel comfortable calling episode 59.1 our most decade hoppiness podcast yet. We hope you enjoy, and as always, thanks for listening. That was fast. Well, yes, I just checked to hear the beginning of the recording sounded fine, so... Spectacular! Yeah, I'm going to... <laughs> victory for everyone. <laughs> that that in itself was a victory so uh, oh yeah so, so, so yeah listeners this is what you need to know uh jeff called earlier for some reason we're having some weird interference in line so he jumped off to check uh the sound quality uh what you missed was me admitting that i've had i think we're alone now by tiffany in my head all day i'm not the good part I have, like, the first three lines in my head, just on a loop. And have had... I don't know why. I have had since maybe lunch. And before that, I had We've Got a File on You by Blur in my head. Um, which The lyrics of which are We've Got a File on You, We've Got a File on You, We've Got a File on You, We've Got a File on You. Basically, that's it. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's actually a great song, but it's not very lyrically diverse, put it that way. Um, and I've had, I have a reason why that's in my head. Mm-hmm. Which is something I wrote for Techland today was about the how your cell companies are basically holding on to all your data, including Verizon, which actually holds on to your actual tech me- text messages, not just a line of not just a list of who you're text messaging. It holds on to your actual messages. Holy fuck! It's terrifying, right? Yeah, completely. Um. Anyway, so that was why that in my head, and then for some reason, like around lunch, it got replaced by. The opening of I think we're alone now, which goes children behave. That's what we say when that's what they say when we're together. And watch how you play. They don't understand. Which Jeff and I had agreed is exceptionally creepy. That that is very creepy. Although who knows? Maybe in a state where you are constantly under surveillance by your own phone companies. Uh... Oh, did you, so do you know why they found this out? Because the ACLU did a Freedom of Information Act to the Department of Justice, and it's a Department of Justice memo that reveals all this. Because oh, the Department of Justice are basically like, hey, I wonder if we can get our hands on this information. Who's got it? And it turns out your cell phone company does. Just to terrify you with Big Brother thoughts. Just a little bit more. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that is that is distressing. Thank God for the Freedom of Information Act that allowed us to find out what the government was trying to get from our corporate masters. Wow. Very disturbing. Also disturbing, I've actually talked to Tiffany. Seriously? I really have. When when was this? Was this when she was Tiffany? Or is this... This was when she was Tiffany. No, 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 no. What happened? At at the height of Tiffany. Was was, was it in a mall? Please tell me it was in a mall. It was not in a mall. Oh, Jeff. Okay. But it's a better story than that, actually. Please please tell me. So, uh... Way back in the years beyond counting, which is to say, like somewhere around 1989, 1990, um, <clears throat> I had a uh, sort of ill 
faded three-year living uh, situation in Los Angeles. And uh, while I was there, I first moved there right out of college with the idea of actually, uh, I had a friend who uh, could get me a quote-unquote real job, which considering I had been working in bars up to that point, I was very eager to pursue this idea. This involved being the uh, switchboard operator for a major hotel in West Hollywood where all the various stars came to say stay. Oh and my god, so wait. So there's the potential this job introduced you to more celebrities than just Tiffany? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How <laughs> do I not know this? I don't know. It's because it's one of those things where you totally want to break it out sometimes, but I, first off, it's years and years ago. So I, I had these situations where we had to, people would call and leave messages, and we this was... this. Even at that time, all the way a million years ago, many of the hotels had switched to having like an answering machine voicemail service for the rooms, but other ones, including where we worked, prided themselves on having you write the message by hand. People would give you the message, you would write it by hand, and then bellboys would deliver the slips to the the hotel room. Oh my god, that's... Uh, that's to the person when they checked out of the hotel That's room. like a, a, an NPC show waiting to happen. Yes, it really is, which is probably why it doesn't happen at all anymore. So I actually talked to a lot of celebrities either in the course of taking the messages that they were leaving for other celebrities, if they were staying at the hotel and calling in for uh, their messages, or, um, and this is great, like what essentially what happened was Tiffany and New Kids on the Block were staying in our hotel. Oh my God, this is the greatest greatest story ever already new kids on the block actually were such fans of our hotel they stayed there several times whenever they came through town on tour and them being a bunch of teenage boys would um, basically hand out where they were staying to like throngs of teenage girls so not only were there all these like 13 year old girls in bustiers hanging out in the lobby all the time dying hoping to see the new kids on the block uh walk through the lobby but some of them had actually like said yeah hey call call me i'm staying under the name you know Mr. Musclehead or whatever and so we would get these like incredibly young girls like calling and asking to talk to Mr. Musclehead. Actually what usually happened was they'd call up and be like could, could I speak to Donnie please? Donnie Wahlberg? And we'd have to say like I'm sorry there's no one registered under that name at the hotel because they're all staying sure, yeah. under fake names. If right? we're like, but if you want to talk to Mr. Musclehead yeah, I didn't do that. No, because, of course, I was, like, one of the first lines of defense. And it was great. There was nothing better than there was this one time, this one poor 13-year-old girl who tried every one of their names. And I was like, sorry, there's nobody registered that name. Wait, wait, so she's going, like, God, I don't even know who the name is. There was Donnie. And there was Donnie Wahlberg. Joey, mm-hmm. maybe? Jo- yeah, Joey McIntyre. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I lost. There was Jordan. Jordan Knight, yeah. Uh, Another Jordan. Is there another Jordan? Or there's another Donnie? No, there's two Donnies. There's Donnie Wahlberg, and then there's the guy who sort of looks like a um, sort of an apish dude. Uh, Anyway. There's actually two Donnies and you guys on the block? I think so. I think that's right. Uh, You're going to make me Google this. The worst part is, of course. Anyway, so she ran down the whole list, and I'm like, I'm sorry, there's nobody. And by the time she got to the last name, she just... She, she burst into tears and shrieked at me, why are you lying to me? Oh and, which was great. I totally felt so Oh, that's sorry. horrible. There's Jordan and Jonathan Knight, Joey McIntyre, Donnie Wahlberg, and Danny Woods. 
sorry, Donnie and Danny. Yes, I actually peed next to Joey McIntyre, which was quite an interesting event uh, in my life. <clears throat> because well, was it really? And also, you chose the best time there to clear your throat. I sure did. I, I, yeah, you're right. And in fact, I. Oh wait, I it, it was the best time of my entire life. Um, no, it, you know it was. Mean. It was a weird time. Well, because here's the thing: you're in the bathroom, you're peeing, right? You know, a guy steps up next to you also begins peeing he knows that you're joey mcintyre and is waiting for you to notice you notice he's jack joey mcintyre and he goes hey how's it going and you're supposed to be like what and of course you're like dude i'm just peeing you know what i mean like it's just it's like, great that dude, you're a celebrity dude, I, yeah, all dude, the time. I, i'm at least 10 years outside of your target audience celebrities don't care i mean he wanted to show i think he was in celebrities they're just like us kind of mode so here's the thing we We go to the toilet as well guys yeah exactly check it out right and i'm right next to you and i'm not even bothered by this shit at all so we more or less finish at the same time we're both washing our hands we both step out into the lobby now check it out this is one of the things that will tell you although you knew it already how decisive my um, uh, bubble of anti-charisma is Joey McIntyre steps into a lobby with dozens of teenage and barely pubescent women standing out in the lobby looking for him and because he's standing next to me they don't notice him because (laughs) he's standing next to spectacular yeah yeah Graham and then guess what comes next? I, I honestly have no idea. You've blown my mind so much that I have no idea. I keep walking. Joey McIntyre, noticing he's not being noticed, stops in his tracks. So I get ahead of him and he breaks out a little dance move right in the hotel lobby. <laughs> and then oh suddenly... God. We should just stop this podcast now because this would never get better. <laughs> And then suddenly all these girls, it's kind of great. It's like they all kind of jump because they suddenly realize now that he's outside the cone of schmuck. That the And it helped that he actually do his, did do his little bank, 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 kind of like hip shimmy, like arm twisty thing. They noticed it was him. And these girls just like literally like levitated off the ground and then kind of sort of started shaking. And one of them sort of walked over and said, oh, my God, hi. And he was like, oh, hey, how you doing? Like exact tone as when he was peeing right next to me. Right. And I'm like, OK, great. So that's that's my Joey McIntyre story, because I not only peed next to the man, <laughs> but watched him dance in a hotel lobby. But so during this time. Um, the one who later came out as gay was that Jonathan Knight or Jordan Knight? I have no idea. I I think it's Jonathan. Uh, or maybe it was Jordan. Uh, that, that I'm like probably slandering all these guys like nobody's business. Uh, I think it was Jordan. Anyway, he, he, no, it was Jonathan. Was dating <laughs> Tiffany. The two of them were dating, and she was opening for them on their tour. That's, so, that's crazy, because if you'd asked me, I would have sworn that New Kids in the Block came after Tiffany. Um, I think they did, but they became much larger, much faster. Okay. So technically, although she had... There, there, were, there was overlap. She was on her way down, and then they were on their way up. Exactly. Exactly. So there was a little bit of parody. They were dating, and part of the reason why... I, not only did I speak to Tiffany, but one of the reasons why she is actually one of my very favorite people in my entire life 
is uh, I was back at the switchboard working the phones. The phone rang because what happens is the phone tries to ring into a certain room and then if after a certain number of calls it bounces back to the switchboard and there used to be a thing that probably still is but a little um, like LCD console so you could see the room number that it was coming back from and you could be like I'm sorry nobody's answering at that room would you like to leave a message so she had called his room directly and it had bounced back uh, and I'm like I'm sorry there's nobody in that room would you like to leave a message and she's like yes um I would like to leave a message. Tell him this is uh, Tiffany. I'm like, okay. And she's like, and I'm like, and your message? She's like, I'm in room 720. Don't be a chump. And then that was the message. And it was like the best. Like that's, I just, I, there was, that's a great message. Isn't that? I mean, Don't that is chump just so is fantastic. A great message. That Don't actually, that actually makes chump. me like Tiffany as well. That's what I'm saying. I'm just like, oh my god, she's like the she's like the fucking greatest woman ever. And then weirdly enough, I actually had to read that message to him <laughs> later. Oh my god, that's spectacular. Which was fantastic. I, I really like this is actually the message. This yes. is me editorializing about the message. Don't be a chump. It was great. It was like Tiffany called at three twenty five. The message is I'm in room seven twelve. Don't be a chump. And it was great because there was this great pause, and he's like, okay. And then I just went on with the rest of them, and I was just like, oh, I could have done so much better. Oh, so. man. So, yeah, I don't know why I haven't told you. Like, the sad part is those combination of stories are probably, like, the top ones, but I've, I've got a few more that are oh. not quite as ridiculous. Okay, but from now on, whenever it sounds like I am failing, you just have to throw one of those stories in because <laughs> everyone will appreciate it. <laughs> oh my god, seriously, I, I we can't talk about comics after that. That's just such a spectacular story. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. I mean, it really is. It's embarrassing because everyone, when you, when you live in Los Angeles, at least when I did, there was just totally this whole set of scales um, of, like how close you were to famous, you know what I mean? So it was always like, oh my god, you'll never guess who I just saw in the supermarket or oh my god you'll never guess who I just almost had like a car accident with because that was a popular one and oh my god you'll never guess who I'm like now having a relationship with sort of stuff so I you know I was I was 22 years old and also stupidly starstruck and I had like a little sheet of paper where it's like when I talk to someone famous I would like totally jot it down on this little piece of paper um, and I I have to say like I honestly think I remember at least 99% of those names, but I'm I'm so sorry I don't have that piece of paper anymore because there's just something about... Oh, there's something about that paper. Yeah, exactly. About who... That really says so much about kind of who I was and just sort of that naivete, like, oh my God, I totally spoke to Harvey Keitel and Car- Carol Kane on the same day. You know? And I mean, when I say speak, there's very few of them that actually spoke to me. You're like this weird interface. So... Um, that, but yeah, not, that almost makes it better in a weird way. Well, yeah, I think so because there's ways in which, you know, you're just this weird filter into how these. In fact, Harvey Keitel was amazing because he would come to town, and I swear to God, every Hollywood actress that lived in Los Angeles over a certain age, like called him. Like that guy, I don't know if he had like. I think he, he must have been okay in the romancing department because it really was. I do remember Carol Kane, but there was like, 
two or three other women, I want to say Diane Keaton and somebody else, and they were all just like, can you tell them that Diane Keaton called and then would leave their numbers and stuff, so. I was room 720, don't be a chump. Don't be a chump, <laughs> which would have been great to say to Harvey Keitel, let's face it. Um, Diane so. Keaton called, she's in room 720, don't be right. a chump. That would actually be great. <laughs> Tiffany did not call, but she's in room 720, don't be a chump. Um... <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, yes, at some point when we run out of comic book... Also, we have joked on many times that we have to make merchandise. Don't be a yes. chump has to be a slow... <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of great. The great part is, honestly, considering Tiffany's not doing much more than, like, uh, going Me- on... Mega with, like Python versus Super Gator or something, remember? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Although um, Wikipedia tells me she has a new album out this year. Yes, and it's really weird. She and Debbie Gibson. Yes, were... they, did, they did that Super Gator Mega Python or whatever it was called. Yes, and they, they did and, that. And they fought in it. And mm-hmm. I swear to God, the PR that was sent out for it was honestly not these two women are starring in it, but these two women are going to have a cat fight in it. Yes. And the first clip they ever sent, the PR ever sent out was of the, the cat fight. Yeah, and I ho- totally hate to admit it, I watched that clip on somebody's I, website. I was going to say, please tell me you didn't watch the entire movie, because it looked terrible. No, 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 no. This is why I think the last thing they should have done is sent out the catfight clip. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, that's, I think, all anyone wants to watch uh, out of Super Python versus Super Gay Man or whatever. It was, it was apparently called Mega Python versus Gatoroid. Gatoroid. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have a lot to explain to future generations. Uh, we really are. I, um, you know what's spectacular? Mm. It, uh, first of all, Debbie Gibson's not calling herself Deborah Gibson, because, you know... That's yes, my... that's right. She's uh, not Deborah. However, that was Deborah Gibson's second sci-fi original movie. Her first was called Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. God bless her. She came back for more. Also, I don't know if you're looking, but they were going on tour together. Uh, oh, were they? Yeah, they were, uh, just relatively recently, because there was a clip on something of them singing, I don't know if it was, I think we're alone now, or, uh, what was, what was Deborah's big hits? I forget, she um, had more than one. Oh, God. Uh, Electric Youth, Only in My Dreams, was the Foolish Beat, apparently got to number one in the US. Yeah. Shake Your Love, Out of the Blue. Yep. Electric Youth? I have a feeling Electric Youth might have been the big one. Or maybe that was the big British one? Uh, that was probably the big British one. And apparently Shake Your Love was Yeah, the Shake big Your British Love, one. Only in My Dreams, um, those were actually up there. What What is incredibly funny is the one Debbie Gibson song I remember by name, but not by tune because I don't think I've ever heard it, is Shock Your Mama, which was her comeback song. Really? Yes, in 1993, and according to Wikipedia, it got to 74 in the hit parade. Number 74 in the top 40. I just love the idea that the majority of that were people who thought they were picking up Peter Gabriel's Shock the Monkey and completely confused. Wow, she then did a a duet with Craig McLachlan of Neighbours called You're the One That I Want. Oh, which is actually from Greece, the original one. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes sense because I think one of Gibson's comebacks was she was on stage for Greece for like a couple of years, I think, right? It looks like, also, apparently she's in Ghostbusters. Uh, wow, that's probably true. Un- uncredited. 
Mm-hmm. You can tell that whoever wrote her Wikipedia page is a big fan. He's a good goes, fan. It was career highlights. The only person ever to ever write, produce, and perform a number one single. <laughs> Debut <laughs> album of the year, New York Music Awards. Debut <laughs> artist of the year, New York Music Awards. Songwriter of the year, tied with Bruce Springsteen. Also, seriously, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what can I say? Like, mistakes are made no, at the time. Nominated favorite female music performer in the People's Choice Awards, so she didn't win. But that still shows up as a career highlight. Yeah, well, let me tell you. So, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, it's interesting because I'm flipping through this thing and I'm like, maybe I hallucinated the fact that they were on tour because they really don't maybe talk about more than the, I, I was pretty sure that they were recently, so. Who knows? Uh, oh, yeah, on the final night of Journey Through the 80s tour, Gibson and Tiffany sold out Chicago's House of Blues. And, yeah, they will be touring uh, during the summer of 2011. <laughs> what a terrifying thought. What a truly terrifying thought. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, although, um, yeah. So comic it, books, it, my it, friend. It really is all downhill from here, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like, it's going to be like, yeah, so anyway, dude, Habibi, just, whatever. I know, I, you know what I have to ask? Did you read Holy Terror? I did not, because it didn't hit our shop this week, I don't think. It just I, did not have copies in. Did you get a review copy? I, I got a, a review copy online. <laughs> uh, um, I got a review copy off BitTorrent. No, 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 no. Seriously. <laughs> no, 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 I got no, no, no. I'm sure you did. Uh, yeah. I got it officially, I swear. Um, in part because <laughs> I wouldn't have gone looking for it, because right. it's terrible, Jeff. Yeah, I'm very like, I expected it to be a train wreck. Mm-hmm. It's, it's worse. It's like an Uber train wreck. It's a train wreck of a train wreck. <laughs> train wrecks, train wrecks. What's kind of crazy is it starts off. I don't want to say it starts off well, but visually it starts off really well. Right. Um, there's there's some really nice like he's you can tell he's taking time in the page, but also he's sort of pushing himself a bit further. So it's very much the same blocky characters, but like there's smudges throughout the page that are really nice, and the smudges break the panels, and you're like, this is visually interesting. And this, I mean, the story all the way through is astonishingly bad. But mm-hmm. for some, like it's almost as if he put, uh, he put the book away at some point and was like, ah, I'm not going to do anything with this. And then someone was like, Hey, we'll offer you shitloads of money if you finish it. And he was like, How quickly can I hack the second half of this book out? It's <laughs> the difference in art is staggering. Right. Um, right. It's yeah. It's 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 horrible. It really is the the book that will make everyone who thinks they're a Frank Miller fan, who doesn't mm-hmm. share his spectacularly crazy politics, um, mm-hmm. be like, Yeah, I really liked his early stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you read Tim Callahan's? Like Tim Callahan wrote a review. Uh... I, I I didn't, but I know I saw him on Twitter say that he's like the only person who actually genuinely likes it. Yes, exactly. So I was kind of like, huh. I actually read that a little bit just a while ago. The review. Did, did you like, read um, David Brothers on Comics Lines? You know, I read his review as well, and I thought actually his review did a pretty good job of. Um, uh, I don't know, being rational. I, I yeah, think I, I thought his review was incredibly fair, to be honest. Mm-hmm. His review exactly. was very like, I like his work, but I can't support this, and here's why. Yeah, and here's why. And I thought he did a, a very nice, clean job of, of laying that all out. It, it is hilarious, because remember when we were talking about uh, Dark Knight 2, and I was like, this is a book all about September 11th. Apparently I was wrong, <laughs> because now that I've read Holy Terror, that's his September 11th book. <laughs> and it, honestly, it makes Dark Knight Two look like a walk in the park. It makes Dark Knight mm-hmm. Two look like him doing comedy. Well, 
you know, I think you, it kind of is, but right, right. Well, yeah, but like, but the, the, it, it's it's crazy. It's it's like every complaint I had about Dark Knight Two, he decided right. to embrace and take further in Holy Terror. Like, it really does feel like an old man's book. It feels like a terrified old man's book. Mm-hmm. It feels like an old man who believes all the stereotypes about Al Qaeda. Yeah, that's the part that sounds more troubling, um, or and and amplifies them. Yeah, no, no, no. In, in, in like it, it takes them to an incredible level, um, but also takes the idea of a war on terror to like a really scary level as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's actually, it's one of those things that's like really genuinely scary if you start to pay attention because you're like this, you know, this guy is, I don't know, you know, this guy is not healthy. If this guy, mm-hmm. like even if this guy thinks that it's funny, and he's doing parody, it's still not healthy. Yeah, this this is such a hateful book, and also such a scared book. It's not even like it's not even bullying. Do you know what I mean? It's not hateful from the oppressor side. It's mm-hmm. hateful from the someone who is terrified of what they are making fun of, quote unquote, side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just it's really really disturbing. It's one of those things where I'm like, Jeff, you've got to read it so we can talk about it. But also, you really shouldn't read it because it's terrible. Right. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I imagine I will want to read it just because, I, you know, it's funny. Because um, <clears throat> there are days where I think I I pretty much threw in the towel back uh, on Miller back on 300. Like, I have purchased stuff since from him. But that was kind of the stage where I was like, eh, I'm done. You know, like I was like, that struck me as absurdly, um, oh, you know, just conservative in kind of the worst sense of the word possible. I'm actually one of the few people in the world who appreciate, thinks the movie is a better adaptation of the book than almost the book deserves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so I, I can't really say that I was fired up about checking this out. And this is somebody who I did end up enjoying uh, Dark Knight Strikes Again, as I know, as you, you know, we've not talked about to the length that some people were hoping for. Well, yeah, it, what, yeah, we should probably say we're probably not going to talk about it because we talked about talking about it so much that when it finally came to talking about it, neither of us really had the energy anymore. Yeah. I, I yeah, think I that's mean, fair to say. Like, we talked about it so much that we could right. talk about it. Well, I also feel, for the most part, I think to the to the extent that I laid down, I seem to feel I wasn't, in, uh, you know, incredibly vague about my points. And when I reread it, I was like, kind of like <laughs> you're like, yeah, I'm right. Yeah, I was. I was like, yeah, yeah that, that's, exactly. that's the problem because we we talked because we teased it. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. ended up having nothing to talk about. Yeah, because we talked about it for something like 20 or 30 minutes. And I don't think that there's a way that if we sat down, particularly after I read it, I'm like, I would make all of the same points, except maybe more so, you know? Yeah. Um, And also, I think, I I was going to say, I think the reason why uh, Dark Knight Strikes Again is, you know, that last part, it has to do with 9-11. But the uh, but it's also leading to such a weird place. The first two parts are kind of are so strongly walking toward, you know, Batman saying like, "Of course we're terrorists. We've always been terrorists," and the nature of terrorism and the idea of thinking about terrorism really dramatically changed 
uh, as a result of 9-11. And I always thought that last part of Dark Knight Strikes Again is Miller trying to walk a a tightrope, which, since he's not a nuanced artist, is kind of a difficult (laughs) thing to do. Miller walking a tightrope is kind of a joke. Yeah, um, but, you know, he's able to shift things a lot. It would be kind of interesting, I think, because he, you know, he... The first two parts are very much about the idea that superheroes are innately terrifying creatures, and according to Batman, they should be. They should be installing, instill, you know, instilling terror, instilling mm-hmm. fear. Um, because that, that, you know, it would have been interesting to, if 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 Miller actually had been, I don't know, kind of a, a thinking man's thinking man trying to own up to the legacy that he's very much talking about at the end of Dark Knight Returns and in Dark Knight Strikes Again would be really interesting um, for him to have to try and come to terms with. But, of course, he's not going to... Well, no, I mean, part of what it is is I think Miller, before Mm 9-11, romanticized terrorism. Yes. And then he came face-to-face with terrorism. Right, exactly. And, and and he, but it's very funny because you were like, you know, nine eleven changed how everyone thinks about terrorism. And my instinctive response was, no, just how Americans did. Right, absolutely, absolutely. I, I and and I, and I think that, that I, I think that America really did have an incredibly romanticized notion of terrorists as freedom fighters, mm-hmm. um, in general. And because of that, and because of the American love affair with freedom fighters as a concept. As right. somehow truth tellers, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and I think Miller's uh, love of the, of the terrorists, it like even up to the first two parts of Dark Knight Strikes Again, right? Um, really shows that. Do you know what I mean? Like there's the man, and so anyone who fights against the man is therefore part of a, a higher purpose. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and, and then, and then yeah. all of a sudden he's like, "Oh shit! Mm-hmm. This is what terrorism is." Um, and so that's that's partially why Holy Terror is so crazy, mm-hmm. because he still has the fixer, i.e., mm-hmm. Batman, um, as that character. Mm-hmm. But his but his higher purpose now is no longer fighting the man; mm-hmm. it's fighting terrorism, which is now because is now taking the place of the man. If that makes right. sense, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Like it's it's. it's Nothing has changed, and yet everything has changed. Right. Right, and I think that's the thing that's really depressing to me, is I think at some point, you know, although, again, not a very nuanced dude, uh, the guy, the, the Frank Miller who did Daredevil the first time around, was pretty well aware of the inherent contradictions, and at the time worked harder than many in pointing them out. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's a shame to see that disappear. You know, because because with Holy Terror there is a way that um, you know <laughs> he he could have been. It would have been an absolutely amazing thing to see to see somebody like take that material on and and turn it on its own head because he would be turning his own work on its own head but he has so disappeared down the hole of his Frank Millerness. You know? here's a question then did you read uh, Benz's Scarlet 
No, I skipped over it. I totally I, didn't. I either. keep kind of wanting to go and revisit it. I read the first issue and was amazingly nonplussed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've heard up in a couple of interviews since, basically talking about you know, it's one of those times where I'm writing. What I'm writing is overtaken by world events, and the London riots and the, the riots in Britain really were where I was taking the character. And that kind of makes me interested to read it. Uh, again, I don't think Bendis is an incredibly nuanced writer. Um, but I'm really curious to see how in this day and age, in, in a post-9-11 world, in a post-UK riots world, in a post-anonymous world, right? how you can glamorize that figure but acknowledge the flaws in that glamorization. Right. Does that make sense? I, it does. I mean, it totally does. And I don't, I don't um, know if that's what he wants to do. It's it's funny because I've been rereading The Invisibles this week. I was going to say actually that was the book that sort of struck me as I, the thing that's going to turn that's going to take those definitions and turn them on their head. Well, it do doesn't. It doesn't. Does, so. Reading The Invisibles now also seems very dated. I mean, The Invisibles by its existence is very dated. It's it's right. it's an artifact of a specific time. Mm-hmm. And it's so connected to what was happening culturally that it's you know it is the nineties. It, it can't exist outside of that. Um, but it's very funny that at the end it, it shoots forward to two thousand one, then it shoots forward to two thousand twelve, mm-hmm. and just how incredibly wrong Morrison was mm-hmm. about the culture, mm-hmm. and how just amazingly because Morrison essentially was like it's going to become authoritarian, it's going to become corporate. Mm-hmm. And it did, but in this completely other way. Yeah. And it's just like that's that's kind of fascinating to me as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I because I think Morrison had this idea of we will become the corporations. You know, we shall overcome that way from within. And it's right. like that didn't even vaguely happen. No, not not even close. I mean, it really much more the opposite way around. Yeah, the, cor- I think- the corporation became the alternative. They like yeah, everyone became homogenized. Everyone willingly became homogenized. Yeah, and then of course you look at Morrison doing action comics, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, right. even you, right? Well, I uh, he although again, like he's 51 years old. I don't know what I expect from. him. Well, yeah, I mean, well, I, although you can still have people who are like that. I think the the thing is, what's sad to me is, is that again. Um, I, I felt that Action Comics number one was somebody who's playing at the um, who's just playing. You know what I mean? Have you read, like he have does you read not Gods mean. Yet? Have I read what? Super Gods yet? Uh, no, I still haven't. So I was rereading Super Gods, which is actually what made me reread The Invisibles. Um, and the Morrison mythology around The Invisibles is, you know, I wanted to do the series, and it went to God, I can't remember where he went. So he went somewhere and he believes he met aliens mm-hmm. and he walks that back in Super Gods mm-hmm. which I thought was really telling mm-hmm. he's like you know I still think it happens but even now I kind of think it's crazy right and there, there's something depressing about that mm-hmm. do you know what I mean they're, they're like more than oh now you're writing Batman for a living there's something right. depressing about this thing which was the centre of my my belief system mm-hmm. back then is something that I'm walking back. Yeah, I mean he's not entirely walking it back. He's not like you know this didn't no. happen. But there's just something about like the jokey side that is mm-hmm. just like it's just sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I, I under, I understand sort of your sadness, but I also think that there is a little bit like the, the older you get, like, <laughs> you know, and again, he's 51. So he's only six years older than me. God help me. Um, it, it, you know, you end up like seeing like these these amazing ephemeral moments that happen to you, like when they don't, <laughs> when nothing really comes of them other than you keep living your life, you kind of do have this stage of like, you know, like I'm sure that for him at the time it was this incredibly uh, important thing. You know, like this is like there's something about the nature of his life and about life. But then when it just sort of when life itself sort of keeps on going, like you're kind of like, well, what was the point of that? You know what I mean? Like there's just to me, there's just it's it's one of those weird things when you get old, which is where stuff like, I don't know, I guess wisdom or whatever starts to come in where you have to deal with the idea of. What you consider special about your life, I suppose, or what you think is special about your life when you're 20 or 30 is so different when you're older. And so I can see him kind of making I, 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 fun of that. You I know? guess I can understand that, but I just, I think it's one of these things that I'm not sure. I mean, do you think nothing really came from Morrison from that? Because from my view, even if he no longer believes that, no. Mm hmm. It still fueled his life for 10 years. Well, I, I think it fuels part of your life for 10 years. I mean, maybe this is just, you know, me being Joe Bourgeois, you know, but when you hit 45, what ends up... What <laughs> you you're, feel, you're saying that your age in particular is the cutoff line. No, 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 no. I, I'm saying for me because this is. I, I'm assuming this is true because of me. But yeah, it could. It could be older. It could be younger. Some people might feel this way at 28. Some people might never feel this way. Or it's taken me this long to feel, um, to to you know pick up this completely mistaken belief in that. As once you get to a certain point in your life, you realize that you're as much the accumulation of your small experiences as you are of the large experiences. You know, like the the common everyday stuff. Like, sure. you spend a lot of time thinking that you're incredibly, I don't know, unique or special or precious. Uh, and then, depending on who you are, you you know, then turn eleven, or you then turn twenty one, or you then turn seventy one, or something like that. And you realize, like, you're not. And but what's precious to you is is everything that you thought is the details. Yeah, couldn't couldn't have been less important to you or important seeming than when you're 20 something you know or wherever whatever level your ambition is i guess um so for me i i don't know i again i find this thing of like i i would like to think that because morrison is somewhat of a well-rounded human being and can actually still be moved by moments of real human life, that means that those things are, like the aliens coming down off the mountain and all this sort of weirdo, monomania, monomaniacal experiences, those things do happen and weird, strange things that you can spend the rest of your life trying to figure out, but three decades down the road, A, not only have you not figured it out, unless you, you know, essentially kind of go insane, but, you know, all the other things that are as important to you, I guess, have lapped it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely possible. 
So, I don't know. I just there's something very right. I, I you know what I think it is. I think that the Invisibles. I read the Invisibles. The Invisibles hit me at such a particular time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think this fuels my disappointment in Grant Morrison now as well. Mm-hmm. That seeing him. Um, make a joke out of it or to like do the winky aside mm-hmm. kind of lessens that impact it's um it's weird it's like when uh a post beatles when lennon would give interviews and he was essentially like oh i could write a song like blah 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 anytime i've moved on to you know better stuff i moved on to more honest things right that always upset me as well even like he was dead by the time i'm reading those quotes um because, but it always upset me because it was kind of like you're talking down this thing that is important to me right. and also to other people and right. it's almost like I think there's a point where I was going to say if you're a creator but I think if, if you're if you're anyone mm-hmm. things that you put out into the world cease to be yours right? and you don't own the way that people react to them and so you have to be cognitive of the way of that of the way that people react to them. Yes, and, super and considerate of them because yeah, they're exactly. theirs; they're not yours anymore. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think it might be that. I think I might be reacting so strongly to this Morrison quote because it's almost like he's saying, "Remember that time where you were completely obsessed with the Invisibles and with everything surrounding it?" Right. You shouldn't have been. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm aware. It's interesting because, again, it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, I, as we have a tendency to sort of trample over the text and into the the, the exciting world of, of the, the creator's lives, I'm sort of like, but, I mean, it is, that is a story that has happened to him. He's not in, I mean, it's hard because it's one of those things that shaped a certain aspect of the invisibles but even the invisibles becomes a work that in the end you know it's not it it is definitely at best a snake biting its own ass you know what i mean like he he turns on the invisibles by the time you get to the end of the work more or less entirely i think oh yeah i think you can argue that he's uh by the end of the second volume which is called the the by the end of the the second series the the American series, um, yes. I think he's done that. I think that the last series of the Invisible those last twelve issues, mm-hmm. are almost this random free association that has very little to do with what everything else in the series. But and I think he, I think he got bored essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think he got bored, and I think that he did. You know, so for me anyway, the thing that it, it would be interesting for me if it was a work that you know was hyper focused, and then he was like, uh... "Yeah, exactly." But but I kind of feel like, in a way, part of the reason why I think the Invisibles is is such a such a meaningful work and a good way to sort of understand Morrison probably still is because it is a work that starts out in one place, becomes bored with where it's going turns all of its ideas on its head and then even if it hangs around long enough, takes that and tries to flip that around all over the place. Oh, it does. I mean, the, the, the last... I was going to say the last 12 issues, but that's not actually true. The middle storyline of the last 12 issues, the the storyline where Edith dies, spoilers, um, and uh, King Mob goes to India. Yeah. 
there's something about that which is almost totally removed from everything else in the series mm-hmm. that is just like perfect to me still but it's also it's also like a diary do you know what I mean it, it's it's it transcends a comic in a weird way mm, interesting and it definitely trans- I, it transcends the invisibles right as a series right I I you know it's it's interesting I kind of I'm like wow you know I really do need to sit down and reread the work I think that I would be a lot more generous to invisibles now than I was when I first went through it because I went through like this is great, this is terrible, this is great, oh my god, this is really good, and then the last 12 issues were just... You're like, like what the fuck is this? Very, yeah, just incredibly... Oh, it, like, it, oh this it's is amazing. It, the last four, well, not last four issues, the last three issues, apart from the final issue, uh, the, the, the jam issues at the end, are yes. just an outstandingly a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, but have I talked to you before about the end of The Invisibles and the fact that I didn't care about the plot by the end? I think you had mentioned that, um, which I think puts you in a good position because I feel like. Well, I think it's great because if I cared about the plot, I would have been horrifically upset. Uh, right. I I was so emotionally invested in the characters at that point that honestly, it was uh, I don't care what you do as long as there's uh, kind of as long as they end up okay. Right. Um, and in a weird way, I think that might have been like i said i was ridiculously into the invisible time but also that might have been the best way to experience it because narratively it falls apart horrifically at the end right right yeah no i think so well yes exactly i mean which which, which really makes a reread problematic yeah i mean the thing that's terrible is there's the stuff that he's consciously deconstructing which is one thing and then there's the other stuff that i don't think that he intends that is just fucking falling apart and so by the, the end of the book, it is, if it holds together at all, it's for some other reason that, that is not, the, the, that he almost doesn't deserve. Like it's either an act of goodwill toward the creator or an act of super investment in the characters. I, I, think, be- I think both fit. I think what holds together through, mm-hmm. until the end of the book are the character arcs. Mm. Uh, but I think the mechanics needed to make those character arts work are just towards the end just a mess I mean really? super super sloppy because I, I feel like by that point King Mob as a character has been so destroyed you know what I mean like he is he is actively turning into like he, he goes from being a character to being a a, a, a magical uh, fetish or focus for Morrison to rewrite his own hand on the world and so by the end of it it's just totally the persona that that Grant Morrison wants to be by the end see, of the book. See I'd agree with you up until what actually happens to him in the end hmm. and by the end I, I'm always skipping the last issue which almost stands alone as the epilogue but right. I think what happens to him with the what happens through the, the last 12 issues is essentially a continuation of what he does at the end of the second series which is mm-hmm. he renounces violence he just doesn't realise how much he's renounced violence until the end of the series mm. the end of the American arc is sees him throwing away his gun and being like I'm going to be an ontological terrorist um, which interestingly enough like he then doesn't 
really pursue. He's then like, hi, I'm traveling around the world. Okay, now I'm using Kung Fu. <laughs> um, right. And then he gets shot. And then he essentially should have died. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that really works for me. It's the fact that he doesn't, and it's the reason why he doesn't, and what that makes him do, mm. that that makes the series work for me. Interesting. I'll have to go back and obviously tackle that last volume, probably the whole thing. But because uh, I I so remember the flip side of it, which is kind of the oh yeah, fiction suits, video games, we run the world because we're running the world. Sure. Okay. So when, hire us for our speaking engagements now. Why, when you reread it, mm-hmm. don't read the last issue. <laughs> no, seriously, because I think what's happening is that's overwriting the the character arc that ends the issue before that. I see. I, I think you're getting really justifiably, perhaps but really focused on that King Mob as opposed to what happens to him to get him there in the story leading right. up to that. Right, right, right. No, I agree. I definitely do because the stuff that you're talking about, I'm like, I vaguely kind of remember, not really. So, yeah. I think no, I, I, I love I love the simplicity of that arc. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where I like, I kind of want to spoil it, but also don't because you're going to reread it. Mm-hmm. But you know the story, right? Even yeah, if- I read the whole thing. So, so he gets shot and he gets saved by Audrey, who is the widow of the man he kills way back in the first series. Right. Who's like, I can't let anyone, you know, I, 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 I have gone through such tragedy that I cannot let anyone else go through such tragedy. Therefore, I'm doing as much good in the world as possible, which mm-hmm. makes him reassess what he has done mm-hmm. and essentially decide to stop killing people mm-hmm. and stop being violent and, and try and put... Uh, trying to put things into the world as opposed to taking things out. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, I really like that arc. I really like that the, the when that is happening, he calls his ex-girlfriend and he's just like, I fucked everything up. I fucked up my life. I've, right. I've become a character in the story. I have, I've rejected reality. I've rejected kindness. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I get a lot out of it still. But uh, but again, the, the getting back to what, what we were talking about way back when we started this, um, Tiffany? No, the, I was going to say The Invisible still feels so much of its time that it's still romanticizing the idea of terrorist as a noble. Oh, yeah. So it's, it, yeah. I mean, it also isn't. It's it's very much showing that there are uh, quote-unquote downsides. Right. Um, but because Morrison gets so in love with King Mob as a character, mm-hmm. it can't help but be like, but still... There's this sexy supermodel that you're fucking. Right. Um, to the point where you don't really get anything that I think is a, a suitable flip side to that until the filth. Mm-hmm. And filth is in so much the other side, the filth is like almost. I mean, it's great, but it's almost unreadable. Uh, it, it's almost. To me, it's almost unbearable more than unreadable. Yeah, I okay. guess. That, that, that's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, but I definitely I definitely see your. your see your point about it uh i don't know you know it's interesting i do feel that um i I, it's interesting that we're talking about it in light of holy terror actually the invisibles because i it's not only are these not where i expected our comics conversations to go generally this afternoon (laughs) but uh but it is kind of a, a really interesting flip side of the consideration you know is because i think that in a way, and maybe this is just me, like, 
if Morrison was still positing himself as the crazy outsider, sort of the way that Frank Miller does, you kind of would, I would have no patience for it. I'm not saying like there's ways in which, you know, I don't, you know, other people seem to have less patience for Morrison at this point anyway, but I find it a little less um, absurd than, than the persona that Miller seems invested in, which is exactly the same persona that he was invested in back in 1999 Oh yeah, Frank, Frank and 1989. Frank is, but what's kind of fascinating is Miller keeps on, Miller wants the world to think that he hasn't changed mm-hmm. but every single thing he does <laughs> right. says the opposite Do you know what I mean? He's right. always like, you know, I'm a comics guy that's why I'm making the spirit movie Right Dude, that's why I'm making Gucci perfume commercials. You know what I, I mean? I, like, do you think he knows? Do you know what I mean? Like, how how much has he bought into his own myth? Right. Well, seeing that that's that's the real question. You don't really ever know. I get the sense that Miller has bought mightily into because it's it's, it's just one of those things. Like, you can't read. Uh, I can't read Holy Terror and think this man is as invested in comics as an art form as he used to be. Mm-hmm. In part because it just seems so um, hermetically sealed. Mm-hmm. It seems so... It's like the Uber Frank Miller book. Like, other comics do not exist. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And I feel that if you do, if you are, like, a comics guy, quote-unquote, if you are into comics, if comics are your thing... Mm-hmm you would still have influences from outside. And Miller just doesn't in this book. Well, you know, I, I tend to agree with you, but I also think my my personal theory is that cartoonists are become obsessed with distilling their essence, which sounds filthy, but isn't, you know? So no, it's I, like, I, I, I know entirely what you mean. So I, I think that there is... A, you know, I, I don't know. I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out basically why car- cartoonists become terrible old people. Essentially, you know, like why? Don't, why don't do ar- so many don't of them artists become, crazy become terrible old people in general? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I mean, all it, of them it, do. Isn't isn't that what creators do? I don't. I would like to think I, that they don't. I, 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 I guess. Mean, I guess what I'm asking is, can you think right. of enough creators who have become ill-adjusted old people to mm-hmm. that they are the rule and not the exception. Yeah. And by well-adjusted, I don't just mean, like, not dicks. Well, I mean, but see... Not, do you know what I mean? Like, Stan Lee isn't a dick, but at the same time, I think Stan Lee is also, you know, not necessarily well-adjusted. I think Stan Lee has also bought into his own myth, and it's just that his myth is of this well, personable guy. Okay, I'm willing to think that all old people buy into their old their own myth. I think that's just a thing. You believe who you are, and then at a certain point, it doesn't matter that that the weight of the crushing evidence suggests something else. You just, at a certain point, you're able to ignore it. That's what getting old is. Um, That being said, I kind of think that the cartoonist suffers from being, from the curse of the autodidact, you know? Like, so many cartoonists are sort of self-taught people and uh god who was it actually i think it was tim o'neill's kind of excellent introduction to uh cerebus 
that he put on his website that I've got to remember to put the link in for the show notes. Um, he talks about the, the curse of the autodidact, which is, you know, they're incredibly, especially in the case of someone like Dave Sim, they're incredibly smart, but they never, because they learn everything themselves, they essentially never encounter situations in which they're wrong. You know what I mean? They can steer themselves out of it. They never have the humbling experience of learning from someone who is smarter than you and tells you that you're wrong and can show you why and where. Mm-hmm. So I think our, our field is filled perhaps because almost like professional athletes, to become an amazingly good artist, you have to spend so much time and so much energy poured into it to the extent of all else that you become very good about these things and because you're very smart you pick up lots of other stuff in the world you do a lot of research you do a whole bunch of other things and essentially what happens is all of that at some point as you get older you be you really have never had anyone show you or tell you so categorically why you're wrong like you've never had that humbling moment that can happen in higher education where you think that you're you believe something or you know something and someone can show you why those beliefs are if not wrong certainly are something that can be challenged you know 